Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. All right, this morning we're reading from John chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, Tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. I think the first Easter sermon I preached, I was probably about 19 years old. It was a little country church down in Joplin, and I had a packed house. And I simply got up and I read a series of the Easter appearances. And I said, either you believe this or you don't. And I sat down. I don't know if I earned my $20 that week or not. (laughs) I think what we actually see in the various resurrection accounts is a development of belief, which is not complete even at the end of the gospel accounts. It's a gradual shift in perspective and in the way of knowing, and it's demonstrated in the various appearances like the one that we see here. And in each instance, Jesus appears and he is unrecognizable to them. At first, Jesus is still accursed in their sight. Death has won out. He's just been crucified, just been put to public shame. And they're presuming the grave has consumed him. And clearly their understanding is bound by this reality. In each instance, they have to in some way change up their perspective in order to comprehend it's Jesus, it's the risen Jesus that stands before them. Matthew, in the passage we read this morning, in a jarring scene, you have the 11 apostles. They've seen the raised Lord and he says, go and meet me on the mountain. And they go and they saw him, they worshiped him. And then three words, but some doubted. That's the 11. Some of them are stuck between two ways of knowing. Two epistemic orders. Hovering on the edge of a new understanding, but unable to escape the gravity of their former world. Thomas presumes he can understand the uh, the resurrection through a kind of measured accumulation of facts. You know, seeing the nail marks. Put my finger, I want to put my finger where the nails were. I want to put my hand 
in his side. Peter is slow to come to an alternative epistemic order. It comes very, very late for Peter. In the scene that we read of the women coming to the tomb, and then Peter and John run to the tomb. And of course, John outruns him. We think he's a younger man. It says John looked in the tomb and he believed. We don't know exactly what that means, but he apparently believed in the resurrection. But it says about Peter, he got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. And he went away wondering to himself, hmm, I wonder what happened. The women had told him what happened. And John says, their words, though, seemed like nonsense. As with Thomas, I would suggest, and maybe this is just modernity, that Peter is left wondering, just short of a complete shift in understanding. The two on the road to Emmaus, I think they probably spend the longest time with the resurrected Jesus without recognizing him. And we don't know who these two are. But he expounds to them, you know, they have a whole exegetical conversation about the entirety of the Bible and how Jesus, the Messiah, is the sinner. And then they stop and they break bread. And this is what it says in Luke 24. When he was at table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scripture to us? So this transformation in the capacity to see the resurrected Christ, of course it casts everything in a new, maybe we could call it a heaven suspended rather than an earth grounded sort of light. And that's what it means when we say on Easter morning, Jesus is Lord. He is risen. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord over the grave. And this opens up a completely new, a completely alternative way of knowing everything. But at the end of the Gospels, they're, sure not, they're still not sure quite what to do. You know, as with the doubting among the leaven, it's not simply that they need to gather more data that they need some more apologetic arguments presented, that they need to gather up a preponderance of evidence, and perhaps this will tip the scales toward a kind of grudging belief. They acknowledge it is the resurrected Jesus, but maybe in a kind of bland, earthbound sort of way. Maybe it's Mary Magdalene who we see, in fact, a part of seeing the resurrected Jesus, there is the inauguration of a kind of new way of knowing. You know, she sees the gardener, who she thinks is the gardener, and suddenly the gardener is no longer the gardener. She would cling to him, maybe because she recognizes that not only the grave will not hold him, but earth will no longer hold him. And her own understanding, perhaps I believe the first instance in the entire Bible, of resurrection faith. We can say about it at a minimum, it is no longer earthbound. That's what it means to believe in the resurrection. As with the two on the road to Emmaus, the transformation is not in what she sees, same man, 
The transformation is in her comprehension. As with some of the eleven, it may be that this epistemic transformation momentarily falters. Maybe we need to undergo a kind of sharpening of perspective, a growing understanding of how our world now coheres. And the various witnesses grow into this, I think that's what we're seeing, they grow into this alternative way of knowing. You know, when they, we see the women at the tomb, they're crying, they're weeping. The two on the road to Emmaus, the, God, the apostles gathered, they're hiding out. In their sight, Jesus st is still accursed. Death is one. And they're bound by this reality. And maybe they're so constrained by their earthy, maybe Euclidean cause and effect ordering around the absolute of death. The, the risen Jesus, even as he's standing there before them, it doesn't say that he's altered his appearance so radically that they can't understand him. But for some reason, he remains unrecognizable, a gardener, a stranger. And with Mary, you know, it's him saying her name because she's probably heard him say her name hundreds of times. Mary, it's me. And the two disciples, it's Jesus breaking bread that we recognize around this table of fellowship. With Peter, you know, it's interesting. It's not simply the miraculous catch of fish, but Peter, we always love Peter because he is slow like the rest of us. And they've caught the miraculous catch of fish after the helpful stranger tells them to cast on the other side of the boat. But John has to explain to Peter, well, that's the Lord. And then Peter, it registers with him. So the intonation of a name, the breaking of bread, the dawning of a new day on a lake, it's at once commensurate with our world, it's commensurate with their world. They see the resurrected Jesus and where their vision was previously obscured, everything is cast in a kind of heaven suspended, you know, Jesus is Lord perspective. But it is not simply a leap into a new world. You know, this is kind of the Soren Kierkegaard or Karl Barth's picture. I, I think that in a sense is true, but it's not incommensurate with the world in which they live, in which they came before, that came before. Nor is their reconstituted insight simply the historical truth of the resurrection. That's what we always hear when people are defending the resurrection. The philosopher and thinker Ludwig Wittgenstein, who himself spent most of his life as an atheist, and then an agnostic, and then slowly he began to believe. He believed, first of all, in the Jesus that Leo Tolstoy talked about a social reformer, a moral teacher. He could believe in that Jesus. But the one thing that he could not hold to was the resurrection. For some reason, he was an analytic thinker, he was an engineer, he was very mathematical. And he records in his diaries that one day he said, I believe in the resurrection. He says, I believe now. And Wittgenstein says their belief is not belief appropriate to a historical narrative. It's not simply that. Belief simply in the historical truth of the resurrection, he says, still rests its weight on the earth. But the faith in which everything is made different is suspended from heaven. 
so that there is a shift, there's a growth in perspective, such that one sort of belief, even though it sees the resurrection, you know, at first it leaves them doubting, misrecognizing him. They'd already seen the resurrected Jesus when he appears on the Sea of Galilee, and they still don't recognize him. It leaves them at the ascension looking into the sky as they are still confined to a horizontal and vertical sort of symmetry. The bonds of an earthbound knowing cloud their vision. Literally, a cloud obscures. It clouds their comprehension, even in the midst of worshiping him. And so I think it's important to say two things here. There is a shift in perspective, but this shift is one that they grow into, and of course one that we grow into. It's not that they did, did not firmly believe, and then they said, well, let's collect some more data. Let's examine the testimony. Let's make a thorough analysis of the eyewitnesses. Let's compare notes. And then... They came to a belief in the historical truth of the resurrection. That's still kind of flat earth, banal sort of thinking. Their belief is not this sort of speculative calculation. It's not simply the capacity to entertain a sort of dispassionate historical truth or to arrive at an isolated conclusion because the resurrection is going to pertain to everything. But neither is it that they saw and instantaneously everything changed such that what came before and after is in a complete disjuncture. We read of a process. The Gospels record a process. It's a beautiful scene with Mary. She looks at him and then she turns and then she looks at him again. And in that second glance, she recognizes him. With the two on the road to Emmaus, it's a kind of burning realization. Didn't our hearts burn within us as we were talking to him? Even in the upper room in which Jesus suddenly appears, even though the door was locked and they're hiding, it says that he shows them the scars. He follows, you know, he gives them greetings. He gives them explanation. And then it says they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. But the seeing is noted subsequent to the explanation, and it seems to dawn gradually even there. And so by the same token, the implication, the full bore implication of the resurrection, it has yet to be worked out in the Gospels. It's clearly miscomprehended. This is the demonstration at the end of the book of John, that Jesus is telling Peter that because of the resurrection, then you must lay down your life for the sheep that they too might come to this belief. And it is precisely the possibility beyond historical affirmation, beyond an incommensurate realization, which opens us. We've not witnessed the resurrection. It opens us to the reconstitution of our understanding, what we call resurrection faith. The gift of the Holy Spirit, the formation of the church, the fellowship of Christians is, I believe, a growth in that understanding. This brings us back to Corinthians. You know, this is the passage in 12.3 of 1 Corinthians. Paul contrasts two orders of knowing orbiting around or denying this key affirmation. I believe this is a way of reading Jesus is cursed or Jesus is Lord. The difference between the two, 
I believe is marked. That's what Paul says. If you say the one, you do not have the Holy Spirit. If you say Jesus is Lord, that is an indication that you have the Holy Spirit. And then he begins to talk about the gifts of the Spirit. But in all of their variety, what they are doing is promoting, I believe, a practical realization of the resurrection. You know, what the resurrection means as we live our lives. If Jesus is cursed, if the, what does that mean? Well, one thing it would mean is that he's still rotting in the grave. That he's the dead Jesus. That he's the Jesus that's been crucified and put to public shame. And what it means to say Jesus is Lord it means the resurrected Jesus, the death-defeating Jesus, the ascended Jesus. Then the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift, you know, what it, the Holy Spirit is the gift of life, of resurrection life. And that's why we have the gift of the Holy Spirit subsequent to the resurrection. And the gifts of the Holy Spirit enable a resurrected order of knowing. And so this knowledge suspended from heaven in the words of Wittgenstein. Paul describes it as participation in the Trinity. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord. There are different kinds of working, but in all of them and in every one, it is the same God at work. What he's just done is describe the three persons of the Trinity as they are working through the church in the various gifts of the members of the church. The Holy Spirit distributes or bears the gift, the gifts which serve Christ's body. That is, their servant gifts, service to the others in the body. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, not through, you know, I don't receive my gift through my, my grace, through my gifts. I receive the grace of the Holy Spirit through your gift and vice versa. That's what it means to be in community. And this is then the embodied, creation-redeeming work of the Trinity. It is our participation in the Trinity. It is heavenly knowledge in that it is divine, but it is a God-come-to-earth incarnate knowledge. It is an understanding not bound to earth, but which addresses and overcomes this earth-binding sort of condition. And so there, I believe there's a, a modernist Christianity that sort of hovers like the disciples did. They see the resurrected Jesus, they worship him, and they doubt. I'm afraid that's where modernity leaves us. That the, the belief is on the basis of a preponderance of historical evidence. Just give me a little more evidence. And of course, this seems to coerce the possibility of belief with doubt always hovering nearby. There is no change. I think it's a sign there is no change in the way of knowing. In this stunted understanding, you might think of the spiritual gifts as capacities that in some way enable us to believe in the resurrection. That we sift through the historical, the scientific, consideration, the accumulated apologetic arguments. The point is, the resurrection is the base of belief. On the other hand, there's a Christianity that imagines the gifts of the Spirit and the resurrection itself 
are sort of heavenly and completely otherworldly and that it does not and they do not engage the practical lived out realities of this world. I believe both are a far cry from the belief Jesus is Lord and the practice of this realization in the incarnate body. We are the incarnate body, right? The gifts of wisdom, you know, that we can line up all of those gifts that we've studied. Knowledge, faith, power, prophecy, tongues. They're all communion, communication gifts to be used in cultivating an alternative epistemic order. A different way of understanding. They all extrapolate from, that's, Jesus, you know, Paul puts it, Jesus is Lord and here are the things that affirm this. And so they extrapolate from that and they return back to that. Here is the communion of the Trinity that's open to us through the communicative reality of the risen Christ. And so Paul says there are different kinds of gifts, but the same spirit. There are different kinds of service. There are different kinds of working. But in all of them and in everyone, it is the same God at work. They are gifts suspended from heaven and they're cohering. They make sense in Jesus as Lord. And this lordship is not some, some sort of reality, you know, that we just believe on the preponderance of evidence. I'm not saying the evidence isn't good and needed, but we should not linger there and imagine that, that we just have to continually struggle. Jesus as Lord launches us into a new sort of spiritual perception, which is not weighed down or simply tied to historical, scientific consideration. These gifts and this understanding are of a different order. The communion of the Trinity, a different epistemic order, is in Jesus as Lord. That's the faith that we, that we have. And so if we imagine the accursed Jesus, the dead Jesus, the, the Jesus prior to the resurrection, it is this that has been overcome. The demonstrable proof or the living reality of the of lordship, that's what the gifts of the spirit are making a reality for us. Paul compares it, you know, it's interesting. In Corinthians, he compares it to the muteness of an idol and the communion of the Holy Spirit. The idol is empty. It's nothing. It's mute. And in this muteness, everything is earthbound. Everything is grave-bound, we might say. The dead Jesus, the one that Jesus, a curse sort of understanding, is bound by an order of knowing that cannot escape this world, the earth's gravity. And in the resurrection appearances, it's not simply the brute fact of the resurrection which transforms their understanding. But something more then. And certainly their understanding begins to be transformed, but then they extrapolate from there. So where they're still bound by doubt. I believe they're, they're still in the wrong order of understanding. And in this, there's still not a community, right? That's, that's what's important for us. They're still hiding. They're still afraid. I believe they're still unloving in the full sense of the word because they're still calculating with a moral understanding shaped by earthbound values. You know, this is Peter's argument. Why should I lay down my life for the sheep when I could be a successful fisherman? Christianity is not tied then 
Wittgenstein says, to a historical truth. It offers us a narrative and says, now believe, but not believe this narrative with the belief appropriate to a historical narrative. It's more than that. He says, perhaps we can say only love can believe the resurrection. Or it is love that believes the resurrection. And this can come about only if you no longer rest your weight on earth, but suspend yourself from heaven. Then everything will be different, and it will be no wonder if you can do things that you cannot do now. This suggests that the implication Jesus is Lord is one that requires the development of a spiritual sensibility. And I believe this is the gifts of the Spirit are aimed at cultivating this. And so the reality is a clearly a dawning reality for the Corinthians. And I think it is for us too. That's good. That's fine. We don't need to be ashamed of that. I presume it dawns slowly for all of us. We each need to bring our gifts to the table so that a community of faith, as a community of faith, we can see the resurrected Jesus and declare, He is risen, Jesus is Lord. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.